Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Quentin Crute. And I'm Devika Gadish. We're the editors of Film Comment. In a 2007 Film Comment essay, Amy Taubin wrote in praise of Spike Lee's When the Levees Broke, a documentary about the Hurricane Katrina disaster and the communities that bore its brunt. For Taubin, Lee makes it possible for their stories to be inscribed in history. It is left to us not to forget them. The same could be said of Lee's epic new miniseries, NYC Epicenters, 9-11 to 2021 and a half, a deep dive into New York City's recent history of trauma and resilience from the September 11 attacks to the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's podcast, we sat down with Amy, as well as critic, artist, and archivist Ina Archer to discuss the fascinating sprawl of the show, a highly personal tribute to the spirit of Lee's hometown. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and be sure to check out the website for show notes and links. Today, we're excited to have two longtime Film Comment contributors and some of our most trusted critics. I will ask them to introduce themselves, although they do not need any introduction. And we'll start with Film Comment contributing editor Amy Taubin. I'm a Film Comment contributing editor, but most of my work is at Art Forum magazine, where I'm also a contributing editor. Thanks for joining us, Amy. And we have Ina Archer, who you've heard on the podcast a few months ago, and excited to have you back, Ina. I'm Ina Archer, and I'm a visual artist and video and filmmaker, and I'm also a media conservator at the Museum of African American History and Culture. So I'm glad to be back. Well, thank you both. We're you know really excited to have you both join to discuss today's topic, which is Spike Lee's much-talked-about new series for HBO Mac, NYC Epicenters 9-11 to 2021 and a half. Am I getting that correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 9-11 arrow 2021. Yes, we, we were obviously very excited that Spike has a new documentary coming out, a documentary series that seems in the style of When the Levees Broke and, you know, Four Little Girls, really something that felt like a portrait of American history and also something that's felt very epic because he's spanning New York's experience all the way from 9-11 to COVID, you know, sort of this idea of how New York has endured these various crises and disasters and what sort of community has emerged from, from these experiences. So we were really excited about that. And I have to say, watching it, I was really taken by surprise. I mean, I didn't quite know what I was signing up for. In many ways, it feels like a continuation of Spike's earlier work. But I didn't know how he was going to approach something so present as COVID and as the protests that happened last year, which, you know, uh, are a big chunk of the series. And as we were saying, we didn't, I don't think any of us did, because we all, I think we all anticipated that it would be about 9-11 primarily. Well, it is all about 9-11, only he works backwards to say that. Yeah, it all kind of works its way back, yeah. That's true. It culminates in in 9-11, and there was obviously a lot of chatter around the uh, final episode, which apparently had some segments 
interviewing 9-11 truthers that unfortunately before we could watch that screener was retracted recut so the version we saw was not that one and I, I actually really ended up liking the version that we did receive it was probably my favorite of the episodes now i'm i'm now waiting for the nyc epicenters 9-11 era to 2021 and a half true their documentary about the making of the, <laughs> about the making of the series true exactly <laughs> spike should have been prepared for this controversy because there's a similar thing in when the levees broke mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep that he accepted the fact that there were certain theories out there about how the levees had been blown up and who exactly blew them up unclear but he allowed that in the film and so he was going in this one for a parallel controversy and to be open to all sides of what people believed about 9-11. I know some very serious- And still believe. Yeah, I know some very, very serious people who still believe it. Same here, yeah. Do you remember, Amy, was there a similar controversy around when the levees broke documentary? No, there wasn't. There wasn't. It it just seemed like these are the points of view of people in New Orleans of how this happened. Yeah, watching it, it does seem that way. And I wonder, I mean, we haven't seen the the truth or cut, but (laughs) I wonder if it's similar because... Yeah, and when the levees broke, it's just the people who heard the explosion saying, I heard it sounded like a bomb went off. Right. I'm sure that it was a bomb. And they related it to this 1921 flood in which they did blow the levee in order to flood the poor parts of this of the city and save the, the more wealthy districts. The final episode that we did see does cover a wide range of opinions. I really liked the way it transitions from talking about 9-11 in a really moving, solemn way. You know, for instance, I really liked the segment where they talked to the surviving family members of some of the men who were suspected of being the falling man from Mm -hmm. the famous falling man photo. And, you know, really digging into these, like the unknowns and living with the various unknowns and the kind of unhealed wounds of that event. And then it makes a pretty seamless transition to also talking about the bad stuff, uh, you know, the really bad stuff that followed in terms of Islamophobia and, you know, Guantanamo Bay and the war on terror. There's that scroll of names and the mm-hmm. list of attacks. That was, I was like, that was kind and of dates, shocking, actually. Yeah, yeah the did. Yeah. And great. they, uh, it was so moving that I think it's a flight attendant talking about this brown, this Middle Eastern man who was just so nervous that he was he was sweating so much that he had to be taken off the plane and this attendant still lives with that sort of guilt of of having done that and i thought that like that ability to bring in a lot of different opinions probably could have made room for you know some of these controversial ideas that that spike was maybe exploring because it's really like yeah it's exploring what all the complex reactions that this event provoked, you know, in New York City among like the tapestry of its people. I do think the maybe inciting factor was that in the interview, in an interview with the Times, Spike seemed to espouse some of those views. And I think that's what kind of 
threw people off. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I think when I saw that, I was really uh, intrigued, but I thought, oh, that's kind of, he's not saying it didn't happen. But for the last episode, for me, I really had a sense of him pulling his punches in some ways um, right at the end. And I was wondering why I had that sense. And I think in part because that voice isn't included. And I think that, that those kinds of uh, conspiracies or ideas come from somewhere. You know, they have a, a motivation, whether they're true or not, or proven. It expresses an anxiety that I think would have helped to link together what you were talking about, this, the idea of the unknown, whether or not that falling man is the family of these two different families, the family member of these two different families, and then the transition into the Islamophobia and, and racism. And I think that, that it also loses a little bit of a connection to the insurrection um, on September 6th, this kind of you know, crazy ideology. And so I'm wondering if the little spot that they showed in the Times really represents what he was trying to do. I do feel like there's a little bit like a chunk that's just not there. <laughs> but maybe, that's, uh, maybe I was already you know, kind of looking for that. And is that possible because there's been so much conversation about it? I think one has to approach this in terms of what is there and what he did. And I'm saying that a little bit because I'm very close to someone who has conspiracy theories and it makes me crazy and I don't think they need to be aired, especially this one, which is just outlandish. Well, then let's take this opportunity then to start to take it back to the beginning of the series and talk about what is there, what is in this series and how it starts. I mean, I think the series is really, really interesting because although he says in various ways at the beginning that where we are today has everything to do with 9-11 and has everything to do with the, the trauma and the post-traumatic stress of 9-11. And it, that is true specifically for New York City, but it's true in a different way for uh, the United States in general. And you kind of forget that. And you think at the beginning, oh, is his, is this too close to what I've seen last week on TV about COVID? I mean, you know, and I have a friend who just turned it off and said, I don't need to see hospitals in Queens being overflowed yet once again, or right. trucks. I did have that reaction as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is going on here? And I think you have, I, I think it's hard for some people to stay with it. I am extremely interested in Spike's documentary work, and I think it's all of a piece, at, but this film most, because it is about what shaped, what has shaped Spike's filmmaking, which is living in New York City. And so this is a personal blow 9-11 to Spike. And he sees everything that comes since as being formed by that trauma. And I will just say very quickly, this is true of most of his 
great films. It's true, uh, certainly true of the serious films. Spike is the strangest user of music in all mm -hmm. of American film because the films he, the music he uses and that he gets Terrence Blanchard to write is pure Americana. And by that, I mean white Americana. It all derives from Aaron Copeland. The Copeland is fanfare for the common man. And then we have On the Town, the music and the uh, musical and the film. And we have in the climactic moment of one of the episodes, a photograph of Betty Comden and Adolph Green who wrote the lyrics uh, and Leonard Bernstein sitting on a couch and the caption is photographed by Stanley Kubrick. And that is Spike Lee's New York as much as Brooklyn and Fort Greene and even more shaped by that. And this film, you know, the climactic image is Marlon Brando going up battered and bruised, standing for New York, battered and bruised, going up the ramp at the end of On the Waterfront with the Leonard Bernstein score for On the Waterfront played in its entirety in various parts of the movie. It is the most interesting window. And that, that music is true of all the documentaries. And it's also what makes that moment at the end of Black Landsman so absolutely great when they go through the corridor and that's Terrence Blanchard doing pure Aaron Copeland. It, it's amazing. I didn't know what to make of the on the waterfront inserts. I don't know if you, you know, if either of you had any insight on that. I, I didn't quite know how it was supposed to play with the, I mean, there's images of scenes from the film and of Marlon Brando walking intercut with scenes from Black Lives Matter protests, um, you know, and snippets from 9-11. I didn't get that. <laughs> I think there's a whole thread going through the film, you know, referring to cinema and New York movies in particular. And I feel like with this documentary, he's kind of inserting himself more and more. You know, I think he's always there, you know, his voice coming through. And I think he used this opportunity to really forefront his conversation with the, um, with the images, with the people that he's interviewing. And so he has that kind of montage of people saying that it was like a movie. He's referencing the, you know, I think the, the on the town section is so recognizable. And yet it's using a, a really iconic view of New York, doing those inserts of the actual place and this kind of filmed version of the city. And having used these different films in my classes in order to give a kind of idea of how people represent the city, I, that felt very familiar and kind of, you know, fun. I wasn't sure how I felt about Marlon Brando in one case, and it's like this a silly detail, but in a way it's kind of like, well, isn't that happening in New Jersey? You know, and, um, but I, at the same time, you know, could see what the, the impulse was. So I, I just, I think it's kind of his collage and theatrical method, uh, even bringing in his use of uh, archival footage. I think that that's what he's trying to do is to kind of interlace these things in this way that people can be familiar with New York, the way we, you know, the imagined New York with the uh, depicted New York. 
Right. The pop, that pop New York, that pop version of uh, New York. some sense or but it's really it's not like he was pulling from contemporary films you know he's got like gone to the canon you know <laughs> i sort of thought of it as watching it i was like this is his this is his new york like this is what when he goes when he goes to these places in the city he sees frank sinatra running across the the roof you know because this is what he associates with it it seems like a very personal film in that way like you do get the impression that he sat who was sitting at home during the pandemic, just like with premiere open, just sort of like this was like his project that his personal project that he just spent a lot of time kind of, you know, fiddling with here and there. But those incongruities with the music, I think, are real to me. I don't think it's an incongruity at all. Well, I, for me, for me, there's an incongruity between like the there's a mood of mourning or a mood of anger of political or political difficulty. And then it'll open up into this, into this triumphant, a song that for me, you know, fan for, for the common man is this kind of triumphant mood or like nostalgic mood. And that to me, there is an incongruity in the, but it, but it's a productive incongruity, I guess. And it is something that he, and maybe incongruity is the wrong word, but there's it. It's unexpected, I guess. Well, I mean, part of what this is about in the 20 years is that the city was traumatized, it was hurt, and it is resilient. And now it is being hurt again. And we have to feel that if it was resilient in the past and became the wonderful town yet again, very fast. And Spike knows that Tribeca, five years after 9-11 became the most expensive zip code in in the United States yet again. And so all of that is about, yes, it is terrible, but yes, we are resilient. But I find something else just as interesting. I mean, when you look at Spike's probably greatest movie, Do the Right Thing, it is a musical in the manner of On the Town. It's, I mean, there is Love Daddy with his uh, a radio station and there is Radio Rahim and there are a specific black music, both jazz and rap, but Terrence Blanchard's score is pure on the town. And so is the rhythm of that film, the way it's cut, the way it's staged on the street, the way the actors act. And so, and now here we have Rosie is a major star in this documentary. For all of his documentaries, I think he ha he makes these kind of little music videos or musical montages and in Four Little Girls, there's the, uh, is it Joan Baez song that has, that kind of opens it and then there's a, a collage that closes it. All the different um, chapters or I, I can't, I guess um, When the Levees Broke is in chapters and I think these are in epicenters and episodes, but they also seem to begin with a little you know, sort of musical prologue and then one that kind of follows up at the end. And so I feel, you know, as Amy was saying, there's some, something musical about his, you know, he has interest in musicals. And I think that he really, um, you know, puts those movies together like <laughs> in, in that way. Some of these like rhythmic cuts or montages or, you know, whatever you might want to call it that I found very interesting and sometimes you know, Spike's kind of irreverent 
humor. I mean, there's such a, this kind of like irreverence to how he makes documentary and an irreverence that doesn't like necessarily clash with the solemnity of the subject in this case. But, you know, there's like this broaching, this formalness that comes with documentaries, with interviewing talking heads. There's, you know, you can always hear his voice, you know, him kind of urging or goading people to, you know, say certain things. Arguing about sports. Yeah. <laughs> and there's these scenes uh, where, you know, people are talking about 9-11 and he does a montage of people saying it was like a movie, a movie, a movie, a movie, you know? And there is something very musical-esque about that. You know, something very like, um, I don't know, something you want to like snap your fingers to, even though, again, it's something quite dark. You know, people are saying like, I couldn't believe when I saw this horrible uh, thing unfold. And there's a few instances where he does that, that I thought were really interesting, where um, it's like he's trying to, I guess, capture a collective mood. And the way for him to do that, like way for him to capture like something that left an imprint on collective psyche is through these repetitions through these things that like earworms the whole thing about it it was a beautiful day it was a beautiful day it was a beautiful day and i think it's kind of like an accumulation almost of opinions that become this you know these facts or or a uh, um a testament to what the the day was or what the feeling was as you say sort of a collective feeling and I think this accumulation kind of is both enjoyable, I guess. And what I thought worked well was that when he moves into more solemn conversations where people were revealing very upsetting and disturbing moments, you don't feel like he went from all of this kind of light montage into, you know, boom, and I'm going to hit you with this sad moment. I think he, he kind of works you into it. I think the same way that he works the conversation in with the people that he's interviewing, even though he seems to be, you know, asking them to repeat things and questioning them and asking them about their Red Sox uh, interests. I think that this helps to make it bearable what we're hearing and what we're going to hear. Mm-hmm. There's that montage of all the babies trying to walk. That's one yeah. that I, I don't remember <laughs> where, where that happened, but yeah, I do remember right. that, that I was like, this is a choice. <laughs> well, what I love about Spike's questioning on camera is that he says, fuck every other sentence. And if anyone <laughs> ever objects to me saying fuck every other sentence in my classes, I will play this documentary for them. <laughs> Fuck is a very strange expression, and it is exactly that kind of two-sided, explosive word that is absolutely perfect for the reaction to 9-11 and to the 20 years that followed. And I have to say that there was stuff in this documentary that really moved me. Now, maybe that's personal. I mean, I lived here. And I live not far from where that movie was taking place. So when the second plane hit, I was on my roof watching. Right. Because mm-hmm. every alarm in Soho, house alarm went off when the first plane hit. And everyone woke up and said, what's going on? And ran to their roofs. And for months down there, it looked like a black and white movie. You look below Canal Street. 
where you were standing was in color and down there was black and white. It was really like a movie. I never knew, and Spike says in the documentary, he didn't know about the evacuations over the water to New Jersey and to Staten Island. I had never, never seen or heard anything about that before. And that was really interesting. Or those, that footage is like something I've never seen before. Never. It's incredible. Um, Obviously, he had a lot more money for this than he had for when the levees broke or for little girls. And they did just incredible research. And all the, like, ordinary folks, and I mean, I, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense at all, but just like picking these folks that were on the ground that were just one amongst the many, you know, not necessarily... I mean, it's hard not to, the whole circumstance is so exceptional, but not people who generally like stood out like sanitation workers, you know, just uh, people who volunteered. I mean, you have Steve Buscemi and you have just like a resident of Harlem who walked all the way down to, you know, a firefighter who decided to walk all the way down to help. And that's why I think the final episode was probably the one that moved me the most is Finding so many, like, so many of these people who may not have a Wikipedia page, you know, may not be like sort of part of this official history that might only pick out uh, folks who represent something larger. But instead, I got this, I got this, again, the sense of community. And so many of the people, of course, he picks out are black or brown, you know. And so you also get like a very specific sense of how the black and brown community was experiencing this. Even though there's all this great research, it's more than the investigative aspect of it. It's this aspect of like being able to extract that sense of community, you know. And that's in the way that he's interviewing people and the way that he's referring to them, uh, you know, in the kind of rapport he's able to establish, but also in the details he's getting out of them, you know, the way that someone responded to something, you know, who they called, what was the first thought that came to your head? It's a very unusual kind of historiographic approach to me. And I think there's something about that that actually felt like the first couple episodes weren't as strong. And I wonder if that's because they are very recent. And and so, like, I think he does so well when talking to people about their memories, you know, so well when talking to people sort of, you know, getting their recollections out and painting a larger sort of picture out of them. There was something that felt a little cursory to me in the first, first couple episodes. And I also wondered if it's because, you know, a lot of the footage that he's using in that is stuff that I personally, for instance, have seen online this whole year. You know, a lot of phone footage, YouTube footage, you know, this sort of stuff that's been circulating over and over again. So it felt a little bit like a compilation of that stuff. And it felt so recent that I was just like, I don't know if I can sort of bear, uh, you know, this right now, whether it was about COVID or about George Floyd or, you you know, police brutality. And so when it moved more into the past and kind of connecting the present to the past and starting to draw those lines was when it became really compelling for me. I do think he does a similar thing in the first episodes. There's some great stories and some interviews with people, that family, the woman holding the photograph of her husband. Oh no, that was 9-11. That was a 9-11 story. That was incredibly moving. But there's, but there was the, the teacher, the family of the teacher, the two 
the two children who died of COVID. That was, I mean, Ugh. it's moving, but it's like, but it is such a massive tragedy that we're still, you know, in that's ongoing. It's, it's difficult to really step back. I mean, there's a, I have a very, I had a really good friend who wonderfully, I mean, I don't know how Spike found him, Michael Dorian, who was the vet's assistant at my vet and helped me with many of my cats. And he was on working on the pile and it took him a long time to get covered by insurance. They didn't want to believe that he was really there. He was a police auxiliary officer and he had to find the proof that he was there in this outdated tape at a television station. And then he got care and he died two weeks after Spike filmed him. And he was just one of the most beautiful men. And the two parts of his interview, for me, you know, how can I separate? I'm, I think the best thing in the film is Michael Dorian, you know, but how did Spike know to find Michael Dorian? And that's what I mean by he had really great researchers because Michael Dorian was a spokesman. He did go to Washington, uh, but so did many people. And so did John Stewart, who's in the film. But somehow Spike found his way to Michael Dorian. Oh, that was so moving. I mean, I, my heart broke when, you know, the intertitle said that he had passed and like how he was told he had two weeks and somehow he managed five years. And then fi they finally found this local TV news footage of him with a blanket on. Yeah. And that little detail is so Amazing. compelling that they had to fight so hard to get coverage and he had to present proof that he was there. I mean... Proof that you were there amidst that, like, you know, world ending crisis and, like, you know, this crazy finding this tape in some TV stations' archives. It was, yeah, it was a very, very moving detail. And my condolences to you, Amy. I, I, that's so interesting that you knew him. Well, to all his friends and all of the animals, like this animal here that he took care of. <laughs> oh. We're looking at Amy's cat for us, listeners. Making, we're all tearing up a little <laughs> bit as we think about it. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I think that that kind of connects to the archive in a capital A, or maybe not capital A, like the archive of these different moments and how different the materials, you know, the way that people captured images around 9-11, which seemed very immediate at the time, but th that there was also all kinds of news footage, people's video cameras, all these different methods. You know, when he pulls out that tape, it's kind of like, look at that draw full of tapes that are- Dying. <laughs> are, are dying, yeah, they're disappearing, yeah. And, you know, the way that everyone has been capturing uh, images and how much we've depended on that when looking at looking at Black Lives Matter, looking at George Floyd and these other moments that we do see a lot and can access much more easily. You know, I remember 
finding the uh, the French brothers that film of 9-11 when they were going out to to film the firemen, you know, just being the most shocking thing I'd ever seen, even while being in Brooklyn and, you know, going to my window, kind of watching the, the first tower burning on TV and then saying, wait, why don't I look out the window and, you know, seeing it right there. But to see, you know, looking at the, those um, images over and over again, quite a long time later, you know, it's, it's just a different media landscape than it is now. And I, I think that's, you know, just how we're going to keep or organize all of these images, uh, I think is something that we need to think about, or I think are thinking about, but I think that Spike Lee has kind of started that compiling of that material. It made me think a little bit of Arthur Jaffa's um, Love is a Message, The Message is Death, that calls from YouTube videos, but makes this incredible impact of talking about the moment. And I think that in future, these montages that are so contemporary to us right now will, will feel much more historical or, or historicized in a different way. I find them hard to look at now as well. And I think it's the beginning of chapter three where he, it's Radio Rahim. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. George Floyd and um, Eric Garner, Eric Garner. Yeah. and I, you know, I still haven't seen the footage and I had to kind of, I had to fast know, forward through it, yeah, honestly. That's yeah. the first time I've, I forced myself to sit down and watch. Did you, were you able to, I, yeah. yeah, I just, I was like, well, you know, stick with the film and let's see what it does. Uh, there's also that that scene where he intercuts the footage of the of the white guy getting pulled over by the police with the footage of that uh, marine who had been pulled over and was immediately pepper sprayed and pulled oh, out. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. and this white guy says is like screaming at the police that he has a gun that he's going to drive. And the police are like, "Oh, okay, well, just like you know, take it don't easy, buddy. Away. Take it easy. Don't, <laughs> don't drive away." And then he drives away. Drives away. And they're like, "Oh, well, I guess he got away." And meanwhile, then it cuts to like you know them just just like grabbing this Brutal marine idea. who just was just yeah. trying who is just trying to like do what they were telling him to do and i think those scenes again like when i was watching those parts in isolation they didn't quite work for me a mix of the immediateness the closeness you know the fact that they felt very traumatic and also that you know i was like okay well Unfortunately, this is a narrative we've repeated over and over again. See how they treat white folks, see how they treat, you know, black folks and people of color. Seeing that intercut again, you know, what exactly is it doing for me? I just never seen that. I, you don't see the videos of, of the white folks no, being don't. treated well, no, you know? So I that just really like. You do on Twitter. <laughs> I feel like you do on Twitter. People love making these kinds of montages. Like, that's. That's what I'm saying. I think because I'm steeped in this like online circulation of this kind of images, it felt too close and sort of jaded to me. But finishing the series, stepping back and seeing, okay, now how do I think of this in context of the images from 9-11, of racism in the wake of 9-11, of, you know, state neglect of people who worked in the aftermath of that tragedy, you know, all of that coming together is where it's making sense to me. So initially I was very much like, okay, like, you know, what is, what exactly is the message here? But I think it's the accumulation of all these details together and that epic view that 
made it all sort of clear to me, you know, and it really felt like what you're saying now, what you were just saying, Aina, that he's trying to get a step ahead of where we are almost. Like he's he's creating something that we are going to be able to look back at in a way. And these lines that when we are living through something in the moment are really difficult to draw. These historical lines. Yeah, I w- and I think that I think the first part that deals with COVID and the uh, George Floyd uprisings are really um, struck me as much more personal, or a, a, from his per- a personal one man's view of the world, kind of, and what he kind of picked out and thought was important from these like from these events that are still kind of ongoing and unfolding especially I think some of the George Floyd stuff was basically like most of the, most of the, most of the stuff he covered was around in Fort green kind of near his home. So there's, so I think he's reacting to, which is interesting. That was the center in New York. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The Barclays center. The People's Republic of Brooklyn. (laughs) But he, but he's, he focuses on this one event that happened in, in Fort green park. I think, I don't know exactly where he lives, but I... He doesn't live in Brooklyn anymore. He just has a... He has his business. Okay, okay. That's his office over on... Yeah. Right, the, the, the studios over there. Yeah, a block away from where this one event that they go into in, in detail about. I, it just seemed very much like his his world in that, in that in those moments. And then I think the 9-11 stuff, because it's so much more writ in the history books he's able to criticize or engage with those written histories yeah but the first for me extraordinary moment about in the aftermath of 9-11 is that shot in the 25th hour where he goes the ed norton goes with his very rich friend who lives in a condo overlooking ground zero And he talks to Ed Norton about how he can't sell now because the value has gone down. So he's not even he's not even thinking about leaving because Ed Norton says, do you still want to live here? Uh, But the shot is while they're talking, just looking down at it. And it was so extraordinary to see that and to see at that moment. And the film came out a year after 9-11. And it was that shot happened, was made maybe two months after 9-11. For me, it just made my heart stop when I saw that in the film. And then there's this discussion about, you know, when you get out of jail in seven years, everything in your life will have changed in the context of everything has already changed because of 9-11. I mean, I, I think, 25th Hour is one of his great films. And I think it's a film about 9-11. So that, that actual shot looking down into the pile, is that actually from the 25th Hour? I was wondering about that. I think, I, he, I I think that it shot, is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's these shots of lights that, that he uses sometimes where the two lights kind of cross and they shoot up, like the two lights shooting oh, up. Oh, yeah, right, and right. And that's also from the opening sequence from of 25th Hour, oh. the credit sequence. But then there is this kind of blue, it's this blue fluorescent light kind of moodily lit thing. And they're, and you look yeah. down into this construction right. as, as they're cleaning up the, the pile from the, from the apartment, the finance guy's apartment. 
And I think he makes a transition into the uh, into the memorial, the uh, memorial fountain. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what was the next shot. Maybe I'm misremembering that. In the documentary, not in 25th Hour. In the documentary, yeah. 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 25th Hour is interesting. I don't know what to think about it in terms, especially in terms of 9-11. Because I, th- I wasn't able to really see it as a film about 9-11, but I've only, I've seen it much more recently. So 9-11 no longer loomed over the entire, the entire landscape, maybe as it did right when, when it came out. It seems like it makes references to 9-11, but then it mainly, it's, uh, then it kind of goes uptown and you're in these worlds where it's not really affecting people's lives as much. I guess now that as you're talking about it, though, Amy, I'm thinking there's that that dream sequence at the end where he imagines leaving and just not going to jail. And it is the sort of like fantasy world of like not being a New Yorker anymore. too. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Can I get away from this thing? Yeah. And and he can't. Mm-hmm. He can't not be a New Yorker anymore. He's willing to accept like the worst possible thing. For him, but in order to continue to be a New Yorker. I also think about When the Levees Broke as being sort of the style of When the Levees Broke is very similar to the style of this new film. I mean, they're made by the same filmmaker, but it, but the, but in terms of uh, perspective too, just like the way that the way that he's getting at different uh, stories and bringing different stories in and weaving them together and having nor- uh, regular folk talk to people to politicians and celebrities and like more official accounts of stories alongside people whose trailers were washed away or who were floating on a in a cooler for a day and things like that the thing that mystifies me about this new film a little bit is is it a critique and if it's a critique what is it it's it's a simultaneous it's critiquing but it's also celebrating and when the levees broke seems much more angry and direct and directly critiquing something. I feel like these these two films are very much uh, intertwined. I feel like they are too, but the difference is that he's not from New Orleans and he is from New York. And I think that there's a little bit more of a step back with when the levees broke, you know, that he allows the people who are present to express themselves. And I think he expresses his anger, but that there's not the same kind of personalizing that happens in in epicenters. I also have to say that watching When the Levees Broke again, you forget, like, that was really not okay. (laughs) Like, that was like... It's just unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. unbelievable. A terrible failure, yeah. Not the film, not the series, (laughs) the subject. And, you know, we, we... we have to live here in this place, this country, so we don't think about these things after they happen. Yeah. And I just feel like this movie just reminds you of the this the scale of this disaster. I mean, what you were just saying, Clint, like, is it critiquing? Is it celebrating? You know, going back to what you said about 25th Hour, this walking away from New York, but you can't, I think... I do feel like Spike is tapping into something with the series about what it just means to <laughs> live in a in kind of a broken world in some ways, you know? This is a very scarred and flawed place, but this is where we live. I mean, most people do not have the privilege to just leave. Or to like pretend that it doesn't exist. 
or to pretend that it, it doesn't exist. And, you know, I mean, this is sort of unrelated, but with everything that's happening in Texas with, you know, uh, abortion and, you know, this idea like, well, like, don't live in Texas. Well, the you know, hundreds and thousands of women who live there don't have any other option. And so, like, there has to be something, you know, you have to find a way to to live and fix and work together to get to something livable. And I think that's kind of what, and with him being from New York, I think what he's really getting at is that this is a really messy, chaotic city that has been mismanaged, that has seen, you know, some terrible things. But it's also a place where millions of people like sustain themselves so how do they do this and I don't think it's romantic even though I mean there are definitely some romantic bits of like New York has survived and it will again and it will be great again and it it veers into that romanticism but I think it's more of a real like pragmatism like I think it's really like how do you just face up to the fact that we are here and there are all these things happening some in our control some that aren't these circumstances that can feel so much larger than the human scale at which we all live and so how do you kind of find something in there that feels like you're part of something larger and part of something that is somewhat resilient there's a big difference between when the levees broke and this series in that when the levees broke is a really contained work I mean, it spans four days with background for how did this neglect happen? But it spans four days. And of course, now it begs a sequel because the levees, the new levees held, but all around New Orleans, people drowned and lost everything. And so something, you know, positive happened because of political pressure or pull of the pressure of the people there. Uh, so that it was better, but just 20 miles away, it was hell on earth. And, and that's really interesting. But this is a much more sprawling thing. And, and I think Dabika is absolutely right in that it is pragmatic. It has pretty much given up on the fact that politics are going to help you very much in any of these situations or that, and clearly New York is no, was no more prepared for COVID than it was for 9-11, than it was for the floods this week. It just isn't. Um, and I think that's very much there. And, you know, I'm not sure that I don't think the image of Marlon Brando is sentimental in a way I do but that is Spike's image of New York, that it is bloody and bruised and that on its own alone, it will battle back. It will not battle back in uh, a collaboration with the rest of this fucked up country. You know, it's <laughs> New York is a thing in itself. Yeah. It's got its own fucked up problems. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it, it's like a worthy response to the series to pick out individual bits and discuss its politics. Again, there's something about the scope that that seems to be the point of it. The, you know, the the wide 
the white multitude kind of, of voices and yeah, perspectives yeah. and but one thing did bother me a lot and i need to say it which is uh, the segment one, one little thing <laughs> the the segment about the protests against the murder of george floyd there's a very long section devoted to the burning of a cop car and it feels a bit like respectability politics which is surprising well I wouldn't say surprising, but like so much of Spike's work, like if you look at do the right thing and, you know, they're they're kind of against that, uh, against like succumbing to a kind of respectability politics when it comes to just the, you know, the social tensions and the way that communities have expressed their rage against or discontent against, you know, the failures of systems. And I was a little disappointed. I felt like there was a little bit of like a scolding vibe <laughs> to that segment that seemed a little yeah. removed well, from the old. This is this is where it seems not to push back. I don't I kind of agree with you, I think. But I also think to defend Spike a little bit here. <laughs> I do think it's a very per this part reflect for me was very personal. Like this is one, I don't know how old Spike Lee is now, 60? 60, maybe. Yeah. He doesn't probably scroll Twitter. He's not probably like engaged in the way that younger people are engaged with this with this movement. So there's a there's a processing of that information that happens through a different from a different lens. No, you don't understand who Spike Lee is. Well, Spike I don't, Lee I don't. has <laughs> always been a very conservative guy on the left. Go. In black politics, he has always been a conservative voice. He has always been pro-police, except in incidents where they are uh, clearly lawless. And the Radio Rahim whole thing in Do the Right Thing is a specific example of cops being bad. But look at Black Klansmen. And look at who the hero of Black Klansman is. And that that guy went on to become an infiltrator of Black power and Panther movement. That's who he, who he became. And Spike did not care about That's that. That's really interesting. And Spike also uh, consulted on an NYPD campaign, right? Like he he had some $200,000 contract with the, with the NYPD. And, and he questions, he questions, uh, you know, but why defund the police? <laughs> but at least he let that unfold a little bit, yeah. you know, to talk, you know, like why maybe that doesn't work. Yeah. I thought the Corey Bush interview at the, in that section was, was really, really good. Good. Really yeah. good. And also he has this, he says straightforwardly that the police refused to cooperate in the documentary. Yeah, they refused yeah. to mm -hmm. participate. So that's very interesting. I think that's what I mean by it's by it's personal. It's a personal expression of his sort of conservative on the left politics. Yeah, but that's not because he's not on Twitter. It's because no, he's sure, always. Sure. He's probably not on Twitter though either for his benefit. <laughs> and you know, Black Klansman is a very good example to remind oneself of that he has never been, you know, he has never been or espoused the kind of Boots Riley kind of politics and maybe that's what I'm you know I'm coming into this being like why is this not you know more progressive or radical and it is very personal it's a very personal look at the world at New York and its history but I have to say when you were talking about the police car and all just before that I was thinking you know 
a difference between maybe when the levees broke and his and poor little girls and epicenters is that, you know, I think back in the day for when the levees broke, Spike Lee is kind of more on the outside as far as being a filmmaker, you know, his, his filmmaking and how he's perceived by the public and, you know, his sort of defense of, you know, Fort Greene and Brooklyn. And I think, you know, 20 years later or almost 20 years later, he's kind of on the inside, you know, a lot. And his friends from Brooklyn and I'm kind of like, hey, you know, your Fort Greene isn't, you know, what it was. <laughs> right, right. When you're talking about Park Slope in Crooklyn, like that, you know, that's definitely changed. I think he's, you know, uh, he can't can't live there anymore because if people are going to, you know, come to St. Felix and knock on his door, which I'm glad that Rosie uh, Perez like called him out on that. I thought, you know, so he's it's not like he's denying it, but yeah. And Four Little Girls has that segment with George Wallace. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, it's such Whoa. a striking segment because the guy is just sort of. Kind of just like you know doesn't even seem fully cognizant and is just saying is uh, pointing to uh, <laughs> yeah and say oh this is my best friend this is my best friend and like saying like oh I did a lot for black people I introduced textbooks for for poor kids who couldn't afford textbooks and the way Spike is you know going in and out of his space and just capturing the discomfort of the black man standing next to him <laughs> who's being claimed by his best friend and I mean, I'm. you can't draw any easy parallels. I'm not doing that. But, you know, even the people in this doc who had some difficult, you know, who were, you know, not necessarily interviewed in a wholly positive light or had some difficult questions asked of them were very, like, very much Spike's friends and were very chummy. I mean, there wasn't that kind of, you know... Well, he didn't get an interview. He didn't interview anybody. The NYPD wouldn't participate. Andrew Cuomo wouldn't participate, presumably. <laughs> If he asked, yeah, Bill de Blasio. yeah, but he's got it's like this chummy, like they're just two old friends hanging out, right? And I think that gets to what I know is saying about like he's on the ins, like he's friends with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, like or Bill de Blasio wants to be friends with Spike, was yeah. kind of more they're, they're conversive, yeah, right. <laughs> Did either of you have any final thoughts about it? I, I feel like there's just so much to discuss and we just zigzagged all over it. But I don't know. Is there anything that, you know, say your piece now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess my piece would be just that I just wanted to mention like the visual language, the graphics, his use of graphics, mm -hmm. which I thought was really uh Nick contemporary. Mm. Oh, I thought you were just going to say Nick centric. No, well, <laughs> Nick's and Mets colors. <laughs> I'm totally missing. Yeah, the fonts. Some of the fonts are very much, you know, Nick's fonts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't be t-shirts. But I, I really feel like it's, you know, one very. I kind of had everything going on at the same time, you know, little, I could hear it from different, from my computer and from the TV and all of those working together. It does seem like a, a, a massive project that, that keeps becoming maybe not more refined, but more and more complex, complex. And, and I really enjoyed that, but it makes it hard to encompass it in just a, you know, in, in an hour, but I really loved having the opportunity to, to revisit the earlier documentaries and, and just to see this, this continuum that he's creating. So 
Well, thank you, thank you, Anna, for your insights. Amy, any final thoughts? Anything that you want that you've left unsaid? No, I mean I think it's a mess, but it's really great. <laughs> right, right. I think I agree with you. A beautiful mess. That's yeah. the perfect. Yeah, that's the perfect description. I think it just sort of sprawls all over, and that he tries out so many different things, and he's just like willing to let it stand. Like he tries out things that mo- a lot of people would not keep, mm-hmm. but he keeps them. And he somehow makes it, and he somehow gets it to like stay together. Can only get this from someone of Spike's stature. Like you right. have to get to that mm-hmm. point to let these beautiful messes just <laughs> unfold on HBO Max. There you go. <laughs> I was just thinking about the title cards and the little identifying, uh, the little chirons at the bottom that say like the People's Republic of Brooklyn. But you, but you're talking about something extremely. It was like yeah, that you know, was six hundred thousand little... dead, and then kind of a jokey title card. There's something about that that was jarring to me. And that's when I was like, this is like, he's his like filtered through his personality 100%. Like he's not trying to provide an objective understanding of these events. Yeah, the problem is HBO Max, which gave Spike the money to be able to do this and to do this in this extensive way. But who gets HBO Max? Well, I bought HBO Max. But the very people who should be watching this documentary, they don't get HBO Max. I mean, I'm having a party for six people at my house who don't have HBO Max so that they can just come over while I work and sit and watch my TV and watch this. So that is, that's a real problem. And it's a problem that extends beyond Spike, that there are really major political films being made now for companies that are just totally elitist and can't be afforded in the budgets of most people. I do want to say, though, as a closing note, that HBO Max, I've realized, has... Is a sponsor of the show, and we appreciate it. Just kidding, they're (laughs) they're not a sponsor of the show. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But HBO Max does have When the Levees Broke and Mm -hmm. Four Little Girls, so it was nice at least to be able to see them all in one place in pretty good quality. So I just want to, you know, if people, if you happen to have HBO Max, you can watch all of them. If not, show up to Amy's house for a party. (laughs) You can watch it on her TV while she does work. (laughs) I'll be in New York this weekend, so (laughs) see ya. She does. She does require vaccination. Yeah, I do. Oh, no. I do. Uh, well, thank you both. This was really wonderful, and we hope to chat with you again soon. And thank you, Amy, to your cat. What's his or her name? His name is James. James. Oh, thank you, James, for joining us. <laughs> the Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.